Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast, brought to you in partnership with Boris of Facts and our sponsor, Jump Desktop. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a working film and TV editor. For the last nine years, I've done nearly 400 interviews with the world's best editors. I've been using Boris FX products for more than 20 years, and I'm proud to partner with them to bring you some great filmmaking content. Today, we're talking with Dan Schalk, ACE, about editing A Good Person, which was directed by Zach Braff, and stars Florence Pugh and Morgan Freeman. Dan moved from L.A. to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, which is where he edited this film, so we chatted from only a few miles away from each other with me in Chicago. Dan's filmography includes, among others, the superhero movie, She's Out of My League, Judd Apatow's The Bubble, and Girl in Progress. His work also includes TV like Kevin Can Fuck Himself, Parks and Rec, and New Girl. Before I hop into our discussion with Dan, a brief thank you to our sponsors. Jump Desktop is a high-performance and secure app that lets you virtually connect to your editing bay as if you were physically there. Keep all your assets in one place and connect to your powerful editing bays from anywhere. Jump Desktop's high-performance remote desktop protocol lets you edit from any low-powered laptop. With end-to-end encryption, native support for Mac OS and Windows, and multi-monitor support, you can be productive from anywhere. Jump Desktop also has collaborative screen sharing for collaboration with your team. See what thousands of editors have been using to get their work done from across the world. Visit jumpdesktop.com cut to begin your free no limits 14 day trial today. And to our partner, Boris Effects. I've been using Boris Effects and Sapphire for more than 20 years, so they're not just a sponsor to me. I feel like they've been a partner in my cutting room for decades, helping me to deliver on the creative vision of my clients, directors, and producers. For all of us, our work is about bringing a creative idea to the screen. And for me, Boris Effects is one of the important tools that I use to do that. To see how they can help you on your latest project, head on over to borisfx.com and check out the Boris Effects suite, which includes Sapphire, Continuum, Mocha Pro, Silhouette, and Optics, all in a low-cost monthly or annual subscription. If you want to read this interview with great visual support, you can go to borisfx.com AOTC. That site has other great filmmaking content, so keep that bookmarked. And now, Dan Shaw, ACE, on editing A Good Person. Tell me a little bit about working with a director that has also written the material. I've done that a couple of times. What are the benefits or drawbacks of dealing with a director who's written the material? You know, the benefits, I would say, are obviously they know the material really well. They know the intent of it. There's no confusion between the intent of the director and the writer, which you wonder about the intent of a scene when a director isn't the guy who's written it and you have different ideas about it. Drawback would be obviously writers love every word they write and it's often very hard for them to get rid of any of it. That was not the case with Zach and this. We we actually cut a lot. He was extremely collaborative, which was great. I, I've worked with writer directors who are a little less willing to take notes. Tell me about the structure of the film at the beginning. Was that something that was scripted the way it was or something that you found in post, kind of the starting with the rail model railroad and then into the engagement party? That, so it was scripted from the beginning. We did sort of add the swimming at the top, the pool shot, just to sort of open up that world a little bit. I kind of like sometimes when when that's done in movies where there's a shot that feels sort of out of context and what is this and 
hopefully it's explained later in the movie. But other than that, yeah, the movie was pretty close to as scripted. I mean, we cut some stuff. We you know, obviously we were we were long in our first pass and, and took some stuff out for the most part. The train thing in the basement was scripted that way. And the voiceover, Morgan's voiceover from beginning to end was sort of the bookend thing. And Florence is crazy good in it. Her performances were amazing. I loved the revelation of uh, Daniel, Morgan Freeman's character, that you don't know that he's an alcoholic at the beginning, but that that's revealed. Is that something that was maybe changed in the script or was it always planned as a revelation? It was always just a slow burn, like sort of letting the information out instead of having everybody come out and, you know, lots of exposition at the top. Again, that was as it, as he scripted it. One of the things that I noticed editorially that I really liked was the jump cut sequence of her cutting her hair. I'm assuming that that was pretty much the shot and there wasn't a lot of coverage that you could try to do it not jump cut. You know, she actually cut her hair, obviously, for that. So we just had the bits and pieces. They just were very specific about every angle, how much hair she took off, and we just kind of worked our way around her. What do you think the power of a jump cut is or why do jump cuts? Oh, I love using jump cuts. I mean, we had to there, but when you're when a scene is playing out, sometimes it just takes too long to play out. And that sort of disturbance in the flow of the scene really helps with the character or the storytelling, you know? I've mostly cut comedies and use them a lot in that too. Not just as a way to move through the scene faster, but as a way to sort of change the momentum and the rhythm of the scene and sort of catch people off guard a little bit. I even think I remember one near the end of the movie when she's in rehab, like walking down a hallway maybe. Yeah, she comes around the corner of the long hallway and then just jumps right to front and center. That wasn't about time or anything. It was just sort of about the feel of the scene and and kind of her journey, you know, and and yeah. Talk about uh, that nighttime shakes scene. She's in withdrawal and can't fall asleep. And there's just a 60 seconds or something of her trying to go to sleep. You know, Zach shot a lot of just really uncomfortable angles. And, you know, we're just trying to make it as uncomfortable and painful as possible. And again, I think Florence did an amazing job there. Yeah, I don't know what to say about it other than, again, jump cutty and trying to convey somebody who's completely uncomfortable in their own body, you know, with just a shot, basically a wide shot of them laying there, you know, tapping themselves and shaking and switching positions in bed. You know, we had a lot more bed positions where we were jumping her around in different positions. And it just felt a little like it's been done a million times. She's here, she's there. So we just sort of stuck with the uncomfortable, being uncomfortable in her body instead of jumping around in different positions. The movie's very emotional. It's a drama. There's great scenes of incredible emotion. And I was struck by, just as a fellow editor, by the fact that so many of those very emotional scenes played without music. Can you talk about that? You know, I think that was a decision going in. I I feel like when we used music, it either made it too heavy. I mean, we were, a lot of times in the movie, we were sort of checking ourselves saying, are we going too far? Is this too melodramatic? 
you know, it's a hard movie to sort of gauge, you know what I mean? So we had to sit down with an audience a couple of times and watch it, but we wanted to make sure we were pulling back from that. And when we tempt it, you know, what are you going to tempt it with? There's only certain music that's appropriate for scenes like that. And oftentimes that music then just sort of put it over the top and it's like, okay, you know, now we're really, really heavy drama category. And it is a heavy drama, but I think it was a decision to try to pull it back a little bit and just leave it in her head. You know, most of this is what's going on in her head and what she's struggling with. I think we felt we didn't need to add to that any. Somebody referred to that once as putting a hat on a hat, right? Like you, you've got the emotion. Why do we need more of it? There's a great scene that I wanted you to talk about a couple of things, performance, reaction shots, choosing performance when you're looking in dailies, which is when they're, they have a coffee where he says, oh, you know, I used to come here all the time when I was a cop. That scene is kind of a slow burn. It starts out just kind of friendly and becomes more and more emotional. Can you talk about building that and creating that scene? I loved that scene. I think it's so good between the two of them. Morgan Freeman's amazing. Florence as always, was amazing. You know, it's built in sort of a standard way. We start wide. I mean, it wasn't unintentional. We're starting out wide, just them getting to know each other, and we work into closer and closer until we're, you know, pretty tight on Florence, and she's just, you see that she's just broken. You know, I think we took our time with the scene. Uh, You know, I went and actually saw it last week again in the theater because I just wanted to sit with an audience of people and see how it felt. You know, sometimes you second guess yourself and go, is this playing too slow? But I think we took our time with that scene and I think it makes it feel very real. Not that it's less melodramatic, but less manipulative, I think. We start up generally wider on them and they're just sort of getting to know each other and just sort of kind of keep coming in tighter. The, The amazing thing is they're both so good at reacting. You know, they're both in this scene you know, I'm sure you've dealt with this too, where sometimes actors, even very good actors, when it's not their lines, they're just not in the scene. They're just sort of what you could see. You can almost see them waiting for their lines. That was not the case with these two at all. So it was sort of an embarrassment of riches. There was always an amazing reaction to cut to from somebody that really said a lot more than maybe is being said while you're on the person talking. That's sort of how that scene came about. And we just... I would say we didn't do much work on that scene at all. It just was so solid. And then, the, you know, the music, he finds the music. And I just love that scene. I love how when she asks at the end, do you think I'll ever be somebody that would want their granddaughter to hang out with? And he says, I have no idea, which to me was so unexpected. You know, you think he was going to be a little encouraging. And he's like, I have no idea. There's a great prelap edit from the train to the AANA meeting. Do you remember that? And what's the power or value of a prelap? You know, it's really funny you ask that. I worked sort of a mentor of mine was an editor named Bob Jones, who passed away last year. Wonderful editor and worked with Hal Ashby and things like that. And when I was starting, and I've seen this before, there's people like love prelaps. They'll prelap everything. And Bob once told me, he said, the first thing I do is I remove every pre-lap and I show it to the studio and they already love it so much better. There is a place for that, you know, and there's times to use it, but he felt like it was the most overused thing that there was. 
So I don't do it very often. In that case, it was the close up of the side of the train whipping by and we go into the, and it just felt like a really good transition energy and movement from where we were into the AA scene. Yeah, in that case, it was so useful for energy and motion and keeping the story moving. And that's why we did it there. I mean, a lot of times, I understand what Bob was saying. If somebody's talking, he'd much rather see the character that this line is landing on, especially in a drama like we did here. You want to see how it impacts the other character rather than burying it into the next scene, you know? So unless there's a reason energy-wise or story-wise to do it, he'd prefer not doing it. And that's why I think we only have one or two in this. One of the uses of a prelap that I love is when the prelap is talking about what's going on at the end of the previous scene. In other words, you start to hear somebody saying something and it's really maybe almost what the person is thinking from the previous scene. Yeah. When, when it's like a well-planned thing, like transition like that, it's great. You know, just a lot of times people don't know how to get out of the scene. So they go, well, let's put a little dialogue from the next scene under this. You know, a lot of directors don't really shoot transitions. They just, you know, you just cut it off and they don't think about the visual transitions into the next scene. So sometimes you have to do that. There is another powerful scene, but also another montage coming out of the coffee house scene where Florence Pugh is having a coffee with, with Celeste, and then it goes into another kind of a montage. What would you call it? Was it a montage, a sequence? What would, it's kind of hard to describe. Yeah, it's kind of her drug trip. So she falls off the wagon because she's just learned that her fiancé is dating somebody else, goes home and snorts some whatever she's crushing on the table. And then it's a bit of a drug trip scene. You know, it started out that way. We took it well beyond where I think it was scripted to go, you know. So we started using reverse shots of her on the bike. And it's it was just sort of everything coming undone for her. We're going to the ceiling fan and superimposing her over her on the opposite side of the screen and stuff. And that was a really fun scene to cut. And I really love how it came out. I It stood out to me when we went and saw it last week in the theater. And I'm like, wow, I, I, that's I'm just really proud of that montage. It came out really nicely. Yeah, it was a, it was sort of her drug trip montage ending with, you know, Molly Shannon knocking on the door and talking about Shark Tank, which is also just sort of amazing. Improvised or not? Shark Tank improvised, yeah. <laughs> the Molly Shannon stuff, just all of her craziness outside of the bedroom. I, I think that was about all the improv she did. That was some fun stuff. Uh, she's hilarious. I love the lightness that she brings to it. In counterpoint to her daughter looking in the mirror saying, you're such a piece of shit, I hate you so much. I thought that was really powerful. There's uh, another montage. I don't want to, well, I don't think it's probably too much of a spoiler because it's not really the end of the movie, but Allison's character goes into rehab and she sits and plays piano and you use that piano song as the, the bed for another montage of kind of her recovery. Can you talk about building that or was that built from scenes or was that meant to be a montage? It was actually meant to be a montage you know, they just shot a lot of her in meetings, camera moving, her out enjoying the day where she's, you know, looking up at the leaves and the trees and things like that. So it was shot as a montage. The one thing that was shot as a montage and we used as a scene, strangely, we did the reverse, would be at the end when 
she gives the speech to the group and hugs her mom. That was all meant to be part of that montage and end with her seeing Morgan Freeman outside of the AA meeting when she graduates from the group. And it just felt like it made the Morgan Freeman scene land so much harder when she gave this little speech first. So we sort of separated it out, had her give the speech. Thanks, everybody. I love you so much. And then she sees Morgan Freeman and that really landed, I think. Yeah, I could totally see how that it would need some more setup that Morgan shows up than just being in a montage. Yeah, exactly. And you can sort of tell Florence, the dialogue she was doing wasn't as precise as the dialogue that we'd been seeing. It was just sort of her winging it, thinking that it was going to be laid way under music and we were really going to hear it. You know, she did a good job and we thought, boy, it, it lands so much stronger when she hugs the mom and it's all part of this scene. And I do think that worked. I think it did land stronger with Morgan and then he walks out and she sort of misses him, you know. Yeah, a couple of great montages, and there's some score. And when you temp, do you think, okay, I'm cutting this kind of a movie. What other kind of movies are there? What do you do for temp? You know, normally we'll say, okay, who, you know, whoever's composing, it depends on the situation. This was lower budget. We didn't have a composer at first. But if I know who it is, then we'll call them and say, you know, give us everything. I'd rather temp with the composer's stuff if I can. You normally hire somebody because they've done something that you think, well, that's appropriate for this movie. So normally I'll try to do that. You know, like everybody, I have the huge library of temp score and I end up going to Thomas Newman and stuff. like. I mean, to be honest with you, I actually tempt from Shawshank at the beginning of this. And it's like, okay, we can't have Morgan Freeman voiceover and use the temp from Shawshank. It's just too much. But it was right. You know what I mean? It felt right. It's just, you don't want to be two on the nose and obviously you're aware everybody falls in love with the temp if you do it right so i didn't temp a crazy amount um the opening and the ending and that stuff we temp but the ending ended up being a needle drop then you know from when she's down in the basement and turns the lights off on the train set it became a needle drop it wasn't initially temp that was actually initially the temp from shawshank so yeah i'll just try to find something that's you know, that just feels really right for the scene. Normally, I'm not trying to cut the scene to it. Normally, I'll have the scene cut and then bring the music in. So I'm not cutting to a beat that's a temp song or, or doing anything like that. But yeah, that's about it. I mean, you know, I don't think I've done anything really where we're using a crazy sort of unique score. I don't mean to say it's not unique, but I'm just saying it's like this stuff was orchestral what you would sort of expect for it. We weren't using way out there instrumentation or anything like that. And I don't think there was a world where we were gonna. So it was just trying to find the most appropriate music, which a lot of it is like Thomas Newman or Carter Burwell or any of those collections that we all have in our, on our computer and just go, okay, this is good stuff. And, and a lot of the music that often came in at the end of the scenes, do you feel like that's correct? it didn't start at the beginning and just coat the whole scene. There was a moment that something happened, something was said and music starts. Yeah. Yeah. I think we sort of got in the habit of doing that because it's a slower movie. It is longer meteor scenes. You know what I mean? It started to feel like, boy, if we score this whole scene again, it goes back to like just too much weight, you know, and it would start to make the scene monotonous. So we'd wait for that sort of, 
you know, whatever that was at the end of the scene that sort of sparked something. It was, you know, like in the case of the diner, even though it wasn't scored, you know, where he says something to the effect of when she asks about, would you let me hang out with your granddaughter? And he says, I, I don't know. You know, it's a moment. That's a moment in there. And and so then it starts the cue to carry us into the next scene. It's a bit of being used as a transition also to avoid scoring the entire scenes and making them too sort of heavy. And I think it was right because I, you know, again, I watched a couple of weeks ago and it's, and we have some longer scenes. There's some long scenes with people just talking, you know, the AA meetings and stuff like that. And it's, it's a fine line again, to not make them too heavy and too monotonous. And, And I think sometimes people, I think music will help that. I think in this case, music was playing against us. If we, had emotional music playing under an already very emotional scene. So we'd wait to just sort of score something specific in the scene and carry it into the next scene. Kind of the opposite of the discussion about jump cuts is when not to cut. And one of the scenes that I thought about that was the first time Florence's character, Allison, opens up at the NAAA meeting. Her performance is so solid that you just obviously didn't want to cut off of it. That was the only moment I had a little bit of a twinge when I watched it was there is a cutaway from her at the very top. For the first time watching it in the theater, it just bumped me a little bit that I wish I didn't have to do that. But I remember the discussion and we did have to do that. It was just for a technical reason. But her performance was so amazingly strong that rather than leave this little technical mess in, we just sort of cut away and establish somebody else. I would have preferred not to cut away there. I would have preferred to just stay on her the entire time and do this push. But there was a brief cutaway where we had to go for a reaction just because technically there was something going on. Either either it was the beginning of one take and the end of another, and we couldn't use either of them all the way through. I think we did that a fair amount in this where we didn't overcut. I mean, we Certainly there's a lot of cuts like when her and the mom are fighting for the in the bathroom over the pills. You know, you're going to add a lot of energy. We want that to be cutty. But whenever I could stay in something, especially with performances this good, I thought, why should I cut away just because I'm getting itchy? It's a great scene and it's a great performance. And I think I always sort of feel like I should stay in it as long as I can, you know. And in that shot you used, and I believe it was the cutaway to her sponsor, right? Which we, you just had the scene with the sponsor. So it was a very motivated choice. I think it was reasonable to do, but discussing what you're discussing, I would have loved to just stay in it, you know, and just stay on her. But I think it worked. I think it had that effect anyway, because we did stay on her for a long time until she brought up, I killed two people. And then it sort of dawned on the sponsor and Certainly you want to see Daniel uh, Morgan Freeman. You want to see his response to she's talking about his daughter. So it's one of those things. I I remember when I was sort of starting out cutting and that was, I think the hardest thing to learn is, Hey, you don't have to cut right now. Just because you have all these angles, you don't have to use them. You know, you don't have to overcut this stuff. You know, if the performance is super strong, stay in it. If you have an amazing reaction, that tells you more than you're getting off of this person's face who's saying the line, then use it. And so I started going at it that way quite a while ago. I get notes a lot like, oh, it's over. I mean, a long time ago, it's overcut. There's too much, you know, why are we cutting to this? And yeah, so that's something I always try to stay very cognizant of. 
and maybe this is also earlier in your career, but do you also think that maybe you, you're more cutty earlier in the process and it gets less cutty or does that not happen? I think I'd probably go the other way. I think I'll lay things out. I'll pick my performances. I think it happens more often than I'll add a reaction that I'll look through dailies. I also have this thing where I, you know, I came from film, you know, there's not many of us left who worked with actual film, but I used to watch dailies, you know, we used to screen dailies every day. And I, so I, I have friends now who are editors who watch dailies every morning. They'll sit and they'll watch three hours worth of dailies. I can't do that. I mean, I have a little bit of ADD. I just zone out and it means nothing to me. I find it much more useful to do a cut and then watch dailies because now I know what I'm looking for. Now I know what beats I need. You know what I mean? So so I'll cut the scene together. Then I'll go watch the dailies of the scene. And, and all of a sudden I'll see a reaction on the B camera that I never noticed because I was watching the A camera. I go, oh my God, that's perfect. You know, And I find that much more helpful for me is to watch dailies and then to work on the reactions and stuff. I mean, obviously, if I have to cut away between takes, I do that. Or sometimes I'll even just cut away. I'll just cut to the next take knowing I'm going to go find a reaction for this. That brings up an interesting point because I edit fairly similarly to that, which is if you don't watch dailies, which of course you have to do something of watching dailies, how do you cut the scene in the first place? What are you doing? Are you going to uh, circle takes? Are you going to the last take? I work with scripter usually, you know, on the, or script sync or whatever they call it on the Abbott. And I'll just go through every line. And that's where sometimes you'll miss a line or you'll miss a beat, but I'll click on the first line and I'll watch every take of it. Sometimes it's, there's something so strong in the close up that you'll want to start there. Or I don't have any sort of preconceived notion where I'm going to start the scene. I know kind of the shape of how I'd like it to be. But then sort of the performances dictate really where we end up, you know? And so that's what I do. I just go through every take of this line. I put the line in. I'll usually put it in. If there's another line from another actor, I'll go through to the next line. So I'll do two lines of an actor, find the best performance. Then I'll do the line in the middle, every take, just look through every take. It sounds tedious and slow, but it actually goes pretty quick. And a lot of times there's actors who are like robots and every line is the same and you just start going through it a lot quicker. But that's what I do. I just sort of build it, listening to every line, putting it together. Then I'll go through and go, okay, well, this is just back and forth and back and forth. So now let's make it flow a little bit and try to breathe some life into it. And that's when you make the decisions to stay on characters and not go back to actors for lines. That's always the challenge for me. And I think for everybody, more so in TV, I would say is, you know, after a while you get tired of the ping pong thing. Like, how do I not do this and still, you know, have the best scene? How do I make the scene good and not just bounce back and forth between these two characters? And it's always sort of a balancing act trying to do that. And sometimes you just can't do it. Sometimes it's just how it's shot and you have no choices, but always try to mix it up if I can. I love the idea of using script sync to do that, but that's definitely the danger I think with script sync is the cuttiness that you end up with if that's all you do. But as you said, you're just using it to build something that you can then react to. What I'll also do if it's a smaller scene, I've done it in this, I do it in TV a lot more, is I'll watch each take, I'll watch each master of the scene, pick the best one and put the whole master in. 
and then just start chiseling away from there. You know, I'll start in the master. Then I'll feel like as I'm watching it, okay, I should be out of this here and find the best place to go to, you know, which I think is a better way to not be ping pongy, like you were saying, in terms of the script sync. It's a better way for the flow of the scene. You know, if it's a six minute scene or something that's really long, it's that's sort of a waste to do that because you're going to just carve up everything coming up anyway. I do like that methodology of understanding what the scene is before you choose specific takes or specific angles, because then you know more about the scene. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really helpful. That's That was always my problem watching dailies. I'm watching this, but I don't know what I'm looking for, to be honest with you. I mean, especially when the biggest thing I'm getting out of dailies, I can go to script sync and I can see how the actor performs it. And to be honest, at the point of dailies, I don't even know what I'm looking for in terms of a performance yet anyway. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know where the levels this actor should be at yet because I don't have the scenes before it. I'm not there. I just find it a waste. It's not a waste if you're one of these people who have like a crazy photographic memory. To me, I don't remember. I, I, you know, I just, I know what I need when I need it. And so it's much more efficient for me to watch it after. You mentioned how in later screenings of the movie, you realized kind of the need to kind of get rid of music or to not have music. Did you also in those later screenings find that you needed to choose different performances for the same reason? No, I don't think we did. We didn't go change performances a lot. You know, this is the most emotional movie I've ever done. And so both Zach and I were very conscious of, you know, where is Florence in this scene? Is she a 10? And it, it was also a tough one because she's so powerful and she's so raw and emotional, but you don't want to overdo that either, right? I mean, it's trying to reduce that stuff in certain cases. And there was a little bit of humor in there too, that it's by no means a comedy, but a lot of times we could relieve it with humor with Molly Shannon or whatever. I can't remember a single case, maybe, maybe one... I'm trying to think where we went back in and said, let's bring this down or let's bring this up or something like that. It was all pretty, I think we mapped it out pretty good from the start. Like I said, we're pretty conscious of what levels they were at within those scenes. Did Florence and Morgan give you those shades of temperature? Yes. In the heavier stuff, not as much. You know, in the heavy stuff, like for instance, the bathroom fighting with the mom. I think everybody knew, I think Florence knew what that was going to be, and that's what we got. But I didn't feel like we were missing anything, you know what I mean? Where there were scenes like when she went and saw Molly Shannon on the porch and asked if she could call her dad and get money for her rehab, she definitely gave us options and was really great at that. As was Molly, as was uh, Morgan. They were just really good at that stuff. Any other thoughts? Like what were some difficult scenes or we talked about the one scene you were really proud of. Were there any scenes that were tricky that you needed to rework and rework for one reason or another? Well, actually the first one you talked about, we went through quite a few drafts of the montage where she's in the bedroom. You know, we tried hopping around the bed, you know, like I said, they would do that shot where you're sort of a, a high angle and you're in this position. Now this position so we did a lot of versions of that. I would say that's one of the things we spent quite a bit of time on. At the end of the day, sort of reducing it was what helped us. I know it's not a super short montage, but 
sort of in terms of that jumping around and stuff, less was more. And it was all about how do we make her feel the most uncomfortable in her body? And I think what we came to was good. I mean, I, I think the first couple versions might've been too long and it really, I mean, it was clear what we were doing, but like, why are we doing it? Why is she upside down and sideways and hanging off the bed and, and doing all this different stuff? So that was one the scene in the basement, the first time Florence and Daniel are down there, that took some work getting to, you may or may not have noticed, there was just, it was one of those scenes where they were rushing, you know, where they were short on time. I would say that was the only place where I felt like we had coverage issues. Florence says her line and then Daniel's sort of off to her right and we're sort of over a 50-50 of him. We didn't have the coverage on him. The lines were just not on camera, you know. And even Zach said, he goes, why aren't you on him? I'm like, we don't have it. We're not on him. We don't have anything on him. I think it worked fine. Zach, I, I was super impressed by his directing. And obviously, he's an actor. He knows how to talk to actors. And he's a very good writer. And I just think he's a great director. And, and the most collaborative director I've worked with, I would say, ever. That was amazing. One of those places where you had to have collaborated and relied on each other is you mentioned how long the first cut was and trying to get it down to length, not a specific time, of course, but just story. Talk to me about some of those decisions, because I'm sure you probably cut some great scenes. Yeah, I think our first cut was around 2.30. And and I, I don't think Zach cared about the time. I think it was a, you know, it's it's just not when is it the right length and when it feels right. And when you've been sitting there cutting it for, you know, eight weeks back here and then another eight weeks with him or eight or 10 weeks, it's hard to tell, you know, it gets very difficult to tell when do things drag, when do things, it's a tough one. And, you know, we had a friends and family screening. Those are brutal to tell too, because very few people are pulling you aside going, Hey, look, you got a problem here. It just doesn't happen. So it is difficult to tell at 239, we were definitely fat. There were scenes that we both felt we just were repetitive and maybe not necessary. And we started cutting them. And, and I think it was difficult for Zach. It was as it would be for anybody, you know, who wrote the scenes. So we'd try it. We'd try it without him. You know, he'd say, all right, cut it and let me see it and we'll watch it. You know, to his credit, he'd be like, yeah, let's let's lose it. There was one or two that I wanted to cut that he didn't want to lose. And, and I understand why completely you know, it can be a painful process, especially for a writer. And that's sort of how it went down. We would just watch it and he'd go and he'd say, do you have any ideas for cuts? And I'd say, yeah, I do. And he said, do it and let's watch it. And if I cut two things out, one would go back and then we'd do the same thing a week later. And, you know, he'd say, I'm, you know, that scene, I'm thinking about it. Let's leave it in for right now. And sometimes we'd get back to taking it out and sometimes we wouldn't. In this case, they were all great scenes, but it's also information that we've already gotten. So it, the question becomes, what's the most efficient way to tell this story? Do we want this one in or that one in or both in? And in quite a few cases, it was, you know, we picked the one and we went with it and there was no reason for both. Did you do cards on a wall to figure that stuff out or was it just in your head? We did do the cards on the wall, yeah. I always do the scene cards and I almost never refer to them. We don't, we don't do it much. In this, we were on the wall quite a bit because we did shuffle some things too, you know, just trying to get a grasp of where we are in, in her story and what we could afford to lose. 
it's the first time in a while that we use the cards and really refer to them quite a bit. I've used cards like that in the past and found great value in them. I could see, you know, sometimes when it wouldn't be, but for some reason you look at it and you go, ah, but if we take that out, then that scene isn't going to make sense. And it feels like on a board, you know, or on a wall that those decisions are easier to visualize or conceptualize or something. It's, it's so easy to quite literally not see the whole picture when you're saying, let's take this out. And then you go, oh my God, what were we thinking? I mean, I've had those moments where it's like, how did we take that out? What were we thinking? And when you're looking at it on the wall, like you said, it's just much easier to sort of go, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. How were you interacting with your assistant editor if you were remote most of the time? Same way we're doing here, like on we 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 just get on Zoom or get on the phone, and uh, you know I I find it very easy to do. I mean I find the process pretty good, pretty efficient. There's some producers who hate Evercast. There's some who you know would rather stay home than drive into Burbank or whatever. You know I've had a pretty good. I just talked to somebody about a job coming up, a, a Netflix show, and I said I'd really love to do remote. I don't know if people are still doing that. He's like, yeah. We're happy to do remote. So my assistant I've worked with a million times. He's a good friend. So it's just call him up. And I don't see really much of a difference, you know, to be honest with you. He's in the next room or he's in, you know, 3,000 miles away. I'm doing the same thing. I'm picking up the phone or I'm, I don't get up and go talk to him when we're cutting. I get him on the phone, not to get him on the phone, but I'll text and say, please find a song for this or please get a train sound effect or whatever. And boom, it's in, you know, so it's, it's, uh, I love the remote thing only because it's given me the freedom to be near family now, which was always sort of a dream for me. It's like, I loved what I was doing, but my whole family was 2000 miles away. <clears throat> now I get to see them all the time and it's, it's great. Technically, how were you dealing with that? Were you both on shared storage of some kind, local storage, the way it's done, we've done it on every project is any vendor. In, the, in, in our case, it was Digital Vortex. They had a Rabbit set up. They didn't have them in editing rooms in, you know, at Universal or anything. They're stored in basically a data room at Digital Vortex. So they'll have each individual Avid set up, tied into a Unity or whatever Nexus or whatever the shared storage is. And then we all just have, I have this little Mac mini here. And then everything else in my room here is like an Avid. It's, I got the two monitors and then I don't have a client monitor set up right now, but if I wanted one, I would. And it's, I'm basically at an Avid and I just jump desktop into it. And I'm, I was shocked how well jump desktop works. I've never had a problem at all. I mean, it's, the picture is beautiful. It's full. There's no latency. There's nothing. It, it works perfectly. You weren't running Media Composer on the Mac Mini. You were running Jump Desktop, and the Media Composer software was in Burbank. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have a Media Composer here at all. I didn't even bring one back with me when I moved. Because, like I said, it's been three years. I did the bubble for Judd Apatow. I did Kevin Kanef himself for AMC. I did Minx for HBO, and this movie for Zach, all from here. All on Jump Desktop? All on Jump Desktop with Evercast. You know, it doesn't always go perfectly. And it's not necessarily because of Evercast. It's because you have a producer who's, you know, in Jackson Hole in a hotel room 
you know, on a laptop and it's like, well, yeah, you don't have enough bandwidth. I mean, you still need speed. You don't have to be in the cutting room, but you need a good internet connection. And I think that's more of a problem than anything is the people think just because you're remote, you can be anywhere. Well, no, you still need to have a fast internet hookup and everything else. But yeah, I, I think it's worked amazingly well. I think personally, I'm more efficient remote because on Zach's movie, for instance, if it was a weekend and I just, you know, I didn't feel like I had much to do, I'd just start messing with scenes. I would never, when I lived in California, drive to Burbank on the weekend, you know, and say, oh, I think I'm going to go cut for two days on my own, you know? I get a lot more done and I, I still get to have dinner with my family, which is spectacular. I didn't never got to do that in California. The other thing too, about it being more efficient is if I'm at my machine at home, I'm working, you know what I mean? I don't know why, but you let you, there's a less tendency to sit and BS and talk about people on the crew and whatever. I'm just cutting. That's it. Totally get it. Much more efficient in many ways. Dan, I hope we get a chance to meet sometime. It's wonderful to chat with you about this movie. Uh, thank you so much for the generosity of your time in talking to uh, Art of the Cot today. Yeah, I'm glad to do it. Thanks for having me. That's it for Out of the Cup this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you'd prefer to read this interview with visual support and clips and trailers, head on over to borisfx.com AOTC, where there's a ton of great expert content for filmmakers of all types. Also, check out my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated look at the craft of editing. Thanks to Dan Schalk, ACE. Thanks to John Chung for editing today's podcast. And thanks to our partner, Boris Effects, and to our sponsor, Jump Desktop. Be sure to check them out at borisfx.com and jumpdesktop.com slash cut. I'm Steve Holfish. Thanks for listening. And please tell all the editors and filmmakers that you know that to get more great Art of the Cut interviews every week, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app.